This week, we continued our series of conversations with the great Sidney Moncrief, and it's been such a wonderful opportunity to learn from Coach Moncrief over these past months. We've been speaking about a variety of things, but the idea at the heart of our conversations has been leadership. And Coach Moncrief has not only has this experience as a Hall of Fame player, really one of the greats, one of the all-time greats to come out of Arkansas and to come through um, Wisconsin as a Milwaukee Buck, but but an all-time great um, leader as well. And if you read much about Coach Moncrief during his time as a player and and after, we read a lot of themes about leadership. He's written books um, on the topic. And so these conversations have been really rich and re- full of resources for all of us who are studying leadership. I wanted to highlight just a few items that I thought were especially interesting. One that came out to me and I asked Sydney about related to a comment from his former coach, Don Nelson. Don Nelson was a longtime NBA coach. And in, in one article from back in the day when Sydney was playing with the Bucks, there was a comment that coach Nelson said, Sydney was the heart and soul of the team, the heart and soul of the team that he could always rely on him as a leader. And I asked Sydney about that a bit. And we went into that time period with that team. And he said a number of things, but the one word that kept coming up was humility in that he, as the, you know, the best player on the team, always knew that it was important that he set the tone in, in a humble way, that he, he was approachable, that others could come to him and learn from him. So humility is something that he's talked about, he's written about, and I think it has a lot of um, insights for all of us who are studying leadership. The idea of being humble as a leader doesn't mean not being confident. It doesn't mean not being sure of yourself or being strong in your opinions, that kind of thing. But his, his humility allowed him to be approachable from teammates and from others over the years. The second thing we were really talking about as well was when you have issues outside the team, whether it's kind of broader social issue, issues, how do you know how to navigate those things? How much as an athlete who's very public, should you or can you or how should you utilize that platform to make a difference in social issues? It's an issue we've seen a lot in recent years of how certain sports leagues and players have become very public in different ways across a range of social issues. And so Coach Moncrief had a lot to say about that and a couple of things that I drew as especially interesting. One, he said um, that he thinks it's incumbent upon athletes, coaches and others who are using their platform um, to to address a certain issue, to be very educated on the issue. One of his direct quote was, he said, always speak from an educated perspective, knowing both sides. So it, I think it's a really interesting point that just because we have a public platform um, doesn't mean we, we should speak from a perspective that's uninformed. And he, he talked about that, about being educated on the issue you're talking about from both sides, understanding where people are coming from. Um, and, and then the last thing among the many wise insights from Coach Moncrief was this idea of using your public platform, but also your private platform, he said. So the the public platform is very evident, especially today, way more than even when um, Sydney played with, with social media and the, the tremendous worldwide platform that so many athletes have. The voices can be heard, but he also said that there's a real opportunity to use the private platform. And he shared some very um, good examples of how he would work with and talk with in in private ways with leaders who had an impact, even in leaders of his own organization. He talked about meeting with Senator Cole, the owner of the Bucks, um, about some issues in a private way. He talked about his relationships with some other really high profile leaders. So. Um, a lot of nuance and skill and wisdom with how Sidney Moncrief addresses leadership, addresses making the world a better place around him. I learned so much from these conversations and, 
I'm excited to continue on learning from Coach Moncrief in these months ahead. Thank you, Coach Sidney Moncrief, for joining us on Sport and the Growing Good. All right. Well, Coach Moncrief, just really excited to continue our conversations with you and to be able to dig in a little deeper on a couple leadership related areas. We've, of course, um, appreciated your book, one of many books. Um, and I wanted to start by kind of going back to some of the things we have talked about earlier. And some of that relates to your relationship with Coach Don Nelson. And you have said that he he was a great innovator and that you had a really good relationship with him in that um, work with him very closely over the years. But I, I came across recently a, an old article where he was talking about the team and it wasn't even an article just about you, but he brought you up in the course of some challenging things the team was going through. And the quote was, he said, Sid has been the heart and soul of this team since I've been here. And I, I wonder what he meant by that. What does it mean that you were the heart and soul of the team? I have no idea, Peter. <laughs> I think he meant because when you're playing basketball, at least for me, I'm out there just doing my best. I'm doing everything the right way. I had great examples with Harvey Ketchens, Junior Bridgman, Quinn Buckner, Brian Winters, David Myers, Bob Lanier, the list goes on and on, who did things the right way. They put forth strong effort. They were students of the game. And I just tried to do the same thing. I think he meant that I was very consistent as a, very, as a good example for the other players in the leadership area. Because I think with leadership, you have vocal leaders. Then you have people that lead by example. And every once in a while, you have a special player like a Isaiah Thomas or Magic Johnson that they're vocal and they lead by example and they're talented. That's when you got something that's very unique. I think I was more along the lines of by example. Didn't say much. But my effort and my intensity, my focus for the task at hand was, was something I did very well. I, I think Coach Nuff meant that quote in that context. We've been studying about leadership on teams, as you know, and you've been helping us. Um, and that coach-player dynamic is one that we're really interested in. And not just like what the coach does on the court with the player or on the field with a player in another sport, but how does that relationship take shape in a healthy way, the relationship between a coach and a player? And so digging in a little more with coach Nelson, he clearly saw you on the court as the model and that he recognized that you were the heart and soul. What did your relationship look like him look like with him even beyond the court? Remember, we're talking about a different time era. Back then, it was a coach, and there was a player, and other than the basketball court, there was very little interaction. Now, there's a lot more interaction, not only with the head coach, but with the assistant coaches. And as we talk about leadership, Peter, I want people to understand what made Don Nelson so unique and special is he understood the value of having a good support team. His assistant coaching staff, they were superb. They, they became head coaches. That's how good they were. He was not afraid or threatened in hiring the best talent to, to assist him. And that, to me, set him apart. A lot of times leaders, and especially coaches, they're like, oh, I would love to hire this person, this young man, this young lady, but I don't know. They're always thinking in the back of their mind, maybe they'll take over my job or maybe they'll sabotage what I'm doing or you have all these reasons and legitimate reasons. But if you have someone talented, respected and strong, then you have to 
pull the trigger and hire that person. And Nelly would do that, Coach Nelson. He did that very well. And because he did that well, even the assistant coaches back in those days, our relationships were pretty much on the basketball court. But here's what here's what's very unique. I'm going to put Dale Harris in that category. John Killalay, Mike Schuler, who just passed recently. Uh, uh, we had Rick Majerus, who we talked about, was in that category. Here's what's what's so strong though about when you have so much respect for that coach, and they respect you. My relationship with with Dale Harris and with Don Nelson accelerated after I finished playing, and that's when you know it's special because a coaches we can be self-serving sometimes and developing a relationship with someone while they're playing for us or performing for us to see what we can how we can manipulate their performance, uh, and we have to try to make sure it's it's a sincere a sincere relationship and that you're very authentic with what you're saying and what you're doing. Coach Nelson and Dale Harris, our relationship is very, very strong at this point. But when I played, it was player, coach. And that was the extent of the relationship. Never went out to dinner with them one time. Never had a meal with them one time. Never went out for drinks with them one time. Think about that. (laughs) It was just pretty much on the basketball court. But during the post-competitive days, um, it's shifted. The dynamic has shifted with, say, Coach Nelson, Coach Harris. It has. It has shift, shifted quite a bit. I still see. Uh, I went out to visit Coach Nelson about two years ago uh, in Hawaii and stayed with him in Hawaii. Dale Harris. I see. Uh, he came to my birthday party. They both came to my wedding, and so that the relationship is is extremely strong. And it was built on a, a, a good foundation. It was, it was built on trust. It was built on mutual respect. And it it has continued over the years and it's gotten stronger over the years. And I think as you get older as a player, you start to respect, you have a better understanding of their knowledge base and what they were trying to accomplish when you're younger. All you're thinking about is playing and how things are impacting me, not the entire team. When you get older, you start to appreciate some of the things they were doing the right way this other dynamic of leadership we're looking at on the team is like player to player leadership. And there was a, a quote from another, there are many quotes from your teammates talking about you as a leader among peers. One of your teammates, Kenny Field said, Sydney is the guy we can all go to. I think of him as older than his years as someone very wise. And I read some things about how people would come to you with like technical stuff. Like how did you, you know, fight through that screen or how did you, you know, position yourself when you're guarding Jordan, that kind of thing. But then some of the things I read were like deeper stuff, like they would come to you when they were struggling. And I, I have a two part question, coach. First of all, he said he had, he used the term wisdom. Where did your wisdom come from? And then the second part of that is what did your teammates come to you with beyond the technical stuff? Yeah, I think my wisdom, the little bit I had when I played, it came from humility. Uh, because when you have a, a spirit that's accepting of others, and uh, I'm doing this kindness, kindness in action, that's going to be next week. My birthday is next week, Peter, also. Yay, be 65. And in conjunction with that, we talk about acts of kindness. And with acts of kindness, you talk about empathy and humility now empathy i wasn't really very good at because uh, i had what we call cognitive empathy and i didn't really think, think that was empathy at all because if you didn't have emotional empathy then the time i grew up people said well he's not empathetic or she's not empathetic or he or she is not crying when you cry or or not happy when you're happy and so i kind of struggled with that but my but my humility was so strong during that time that I think I just saw players on an equal footing, my teammates, as me. You probably know this, but it's hazing used to be really big in professional sports. And certain sports, it's more aggressive than others. When I came to Milwaukee, it was moderate, but still present. As a team leader, I remember uh, how 
I wanted to make sure that we didn't haze other players because when I got to the Milwaukee Bucks, I had a couple of veterans. I was a rookie and they wanted me to do things, minor things like carry their suitcases and wash their clothes and just, just minor things. But yet it did demean an individual. And I would say, no, I'm not doing that for you. <laughs> so I was known as the, the no rookie. When I became a leader, played more for the for that particular team, and people started respecting me more. That was we eliminated hazing or people trying to carry out the people's bags or shine their shoes or whatever. That was eliminated because humility to me was was what made me the person I was. And so when a player would come to me, they know they could they could come to me with, without me looking down upon them or passing judgment. And they knew I would give them the facts. They knew I wouldn't just blow smoke up there, you know what. They knew I would just tell it like it is from my standpoint. I wish I would have been a better listener, though. Back then, I didn't know the principles of, of, of listening. I wasn't much of a talker, first of all. But I wish I, I, wish I could uh, hit up on key words when someone's communicating with you and, and, and maybe feel what they're feeling a little better, either emotionally or intellectually or compassionately. I wish I could do that better. I can do it now, but when I play, I wish I could have. And even as a leader, I think those things are very important. And I didn't do those very well, but I, I was very good on the end of humility. It seems that a lot of really high-level athletes and, and even high-level coaches, there can be this almost insecurity um, that goes along with that for, for many. And, and again, as I read more about you, it seems that you didn't have that. And there was one story that jumped out at me about um, a former player, John Lucas, who was a, a amazing athlete, great, great basketball player, but had a lot of really hard things he was battling through. And the one story I read about was when he had been going through some real challenges with drug, drug addiction stuff, fighting through it in a very public way. And then a lot of people didn't want to give him a chance to get back in the league. And at that time you were, you know, the main guy with Milwaukee and a lot of other players may have viewed him as like a threat to them coming in from the outside. But it, there was a story about, he said that you were the only player he ever had who called him up and was so welcoming and um, in a forthright way. And I, I wonder if you recall that story much and what went into that. What led you to to be so welcoming and proactively um, open to someone in a difficult situation? Yeah, that's so unlike me not to be open, but I'm an introvert by nature. And I don't normally initiate activity when it comes to communication. I remember when John Lucas came to us and I saw him as a, a human. We're a human being first. I, we all have issues, things that we've done or are doing that people don't know about. His was very public. And I just remember just wanting to make sure that he knew he, he was accepted and loved by someone. I don't think I was aggressive about it because sometimes you can talk the game but not play the game. And with him, I wanted to show him that, hey, we're here for you, we're your teammates, whatever you're going through, that's, that's in the past in our mind. We're going to accept you just like you are. And I remember Lucas, he, he had a very good game. He was having a good game when he first got to us. I remember either doing the game or in the locker room, his favorite saying was, there's a new sheriff in town. He kept saying, there's a new sheriff in town. And I didn't understand the, the phrase then. I had no idea what that meant, a new sheriff in town. But as I've gotten older and even afterward, I was like, okay, there's a new sheriff in town. Like, we hear you. Go for it, man. Go for it. But even with that, even with that, Phrase, I didn't feel threatened. I, it was like, oh, great, whatever that means. <laughs> I'm glad you, you know. And I think sometimes it's easy because we're human. And since we're human, emotions are always raging throughout our, our minds and our spirit. It's easy for anyone to become insecure about a number of things. And as a leader, as a coach, you have to really guard against that. I think we talk, Peter, about mindfulness. We have to understand when that's creeping into our spirit and into our minds. Like, oh, well, Peter's doing well. I, I think I might be feeling a little bit envious of him. 
it's okay to have those initial thoughts. But at, when you have those thoughts, then we need to we need to change them as quickly as possible. I like to say change our mindset as quickly as possible and recognize that, hey, you know what? I think I might be getting to the point where I'm starting to dislike Peter because he's doing better than I am. Or maybe a coach makes an observation. Another assistant coach makes an observation to a head coach. And you have these other assistant coaches kind of like in the NBA. You're like a little bit jealous that I didn't come up with that idea. When you start to feel that way, which is natural, then we're going to have to try to get it out of our minds and just get to something positive. Well, Coach, I, I wonder sometimes about our perceptions of athletes and not just at the highest level of pros, but even at college levels and, and increasingly even these very high profile younger athletes that we see this public face of superstars and, and we can often mistakenly transfer that to other areas of life and make it think that just because someone is so great at basketball or baseball or soccer that they've got all their stuff together, you know, that it's all, everything else is in order. And very, very frequently, that's not the case. Um, especially in the, in the professional environment where, where there's so much at your disposal, you, you might be 20 years old and making millions of dollars and there's lots of great things, but there's toxicity. There's, you can have anything you want and it's in a heartbeat can go wrong. If you were, um, leading in that kind of situation now, what would you do to construct a healthy environment when there are so many vices right at our doors? It, it really is. And we have one thing we all forget. And I have to remind myself, I have to remind other people that in general, if you're talking about men or young men, we mature based on certain studies, 30 and I would low uh, low 30s maybe 35 if you're if you're really slow but we're not really anywhere near maturity until we're in our 30s and women are like something like in their tw late 20s they're 28 but based on one study men were 33 based on a study in england we have all kinds of studies but one thing we know peter is we're not mature <laughs> you know we're a little slow to the game slower than females are so let's take that, let's take that fact. That's a fact. And take it, and you have a 20-year-old kid who we thought we were men, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26. We're not even mature. We can't even make, we can't even make rational decisions because we hadn't, we don't have enough experiences, number one. Number two, we're not mature based on studies, based on our brain. And number three. We've been given everything. When you've been given everything, your concept of how great you are, not only in sports, but overall increases. I was in the same category. So I'm not talking about current players. I'm talking about athletes in general. That's always been the case. You can go back to Beirut. You can go back to the, the early 1900s. Same concepts were in play, just different time, same concept. It's extremely difficult for a pro athlete, a high-performing pro athlete. And now you can say a junior high school athlete in today's world because a junior high school athlete has been made to be a great person, a great baseball player, football player, whatever, because of social media and because of, of the technology, obviously. And it's, it's very difficult now than ever. And I always wonder, okay, I played today. What could I do that could shield me from what you're talking about? Well, the drugs, the women, the alcohol, we, we were doing those things back in the 80s and 70s and 60s. So you can't say that that is something that you're going to probably try some things, right? I don't care how mature you are and you're in this NBA and all this stuff that's coming at you. You have all these opportunities. You're going to try some things. And occasionally you're going to get stuck uh, in a vice that could be detrimental to you, to your sphere. So we know that's going to always be in play. But what was not in play, that's in play now, is the social media. Was, was, was not in play that is in play now 
is a society that glorifies self-gratification, glorifies anger, glorifies being hardcore, it glorifies being mean. All the most of the shows we see on TV and commercials, there's someone in someone's face and they're angry or they're talking about someone. We didn't have that. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but it wasn't in front of us on these boxes all the time. I didn't have anyone texting how poorly I played to five million uh, followers or how great I am. We didn't have that. So one thing I know I would do as a player is I would minimize my exposure to social media. Uh, number two, I'm an Andy Griffin kind of bonanza kind of uh, guy, Big Valley and all those old shows and uh, everything is pretty pure. You got underlines and good gun smoke, even though Miss Kitty, you know, she ran the saloon. We didn't know she was running women because, you know, they never talked about that directly on TV. When you got older, you're like, hold on now. This gun smoke, Miss Kitty has these women. They're going upstairs with men. Uh, you know, you <laughs> never thought about that. It wasn't in your face. But now it's nothing left for the imagination on TV or on streaming. And so I would I would certainly watch or minimize what I watch <laughs> on streaming. Everything that's very detrimental in our society now to athletes happens because of technology. Although technology is great on one hand, on the other hand, it creates uh, some issues that could be detrimental to players. So social media and what's on TV, I would monitor pretty closely. So there are all these negative possibilities that come with celebrity and wealth and all that. But then there's on the flip side of that, there's these great potentials for positive impact that like a platform that almost no one else has very few people. And again, as social media and all that stuff is growing, has grown, um, that impact is only magnified exponentially. And, but even during, during your time, when you were playing, I read uh, again, another, as I was doing my homework on you coach, um, the editor of the Arkansas Democrat, the managing editor, he said he was talking about your impact on the state of Arkansas. And he said, Sydney has done more for race relations in this state than anyone in the last 20 years. And again, I, I say that again, because it, that's quite a, that's not, even, this isn't a coach. This isn't a teammate. This is the managing editor of the big newspaper said Sydney's done more for race relations in this state than anyone in the last 20 years. So what, what was he talking about? What was the context there? Yeah, I think that everything that I did during that time was unintentional. As we grow, we mature, we understand the, the, uh, the power of intentionality and making sure that we measure and calculate things for the good of others. I didn't understand that. I was just being Sydney, but here's what he meant. When we look at diverse action inclusion, which we do, we do workshops on that. There's different levels, everything from obviously biases, you go to stereotyping, you go to prejudice, you go to discrimination actions, then you go to harassment, which is which are actions. In the 70s, 60s, and even now, you have you have athletes, people of color being stereotyped as is who this is who they are here's what they do all of them those people that was that was real and then you didn't have these positive images like you do now that's that's the beauty of social media and the beauty of streaming is now people can plant these positive images throughout the media and someone's like oh i didn't know peter was well, i thought peter was like this but Peter's not really different from all the other whites. He's, a, he's as, as uh, forward-thinking as everyone else. Remember, in Arkansas, it wasn't like that. So here comes a basketball team. We're rocking and rolling. Here comes a player that wasn't arrogant, wasn't boastful, and he just went out and played the game the right way, and he represented the state on the basketball court to the best of his ability. People like that. It gave people an opportunity to see a different type of African-American. 
a different type of man, a different type of basketball player. And that did change how people view African-Americans, Blacks during that time frame. And that's what he meant, the view of how people viewed. And in addition to, remember, leaders, remember, sports is the greatest collaboration effort ever. It brings people together. So now you have a basketball team in the state of Arkansas, and it's like University of Wisconsin, big schools, a state school, and you have people that are poor cheering for the Badgers. You have people that are wealthy cheering for the – you have people of all ethnicities cheering for the Badgers. And now when that Badgers played on Saturday, all the things that you thought about other people disappeared and you all cheered for that same team. That was your tribe, as we say. Same at Arkansas. We were – our tribe of the Razorback basketball broke down a lot of barriers temporarily <laughs> until the game was over, until the season was over. But it temporarily re-energized people, and it made people have a conversation about, oh, how about those Razorbacks? Didn't matter your ethnicity. Didn't matter your gender. You were talking about the Razorback basketball team, and that's what he meant by that statement. So it's interesting that so much of that was not even intentional. You were just, he said, being yourself and, and doing your thing. And because you did it so well and with such class and, at, and, and such, you know, you treated people so well that you had an impact without even trying. But at the same time, your skill and the, the kind of the, the way you raised the sport and the state all of a sudden put you in these different circles of people. So without even trying, all of a sudden, there was another quote from Bill Clinton. You know, he's the governor of Arkansas. And this was that must have been after you, I mean, years after you had played, Coach, right? Uh, he was the governor when I played. Oh, he was? Okay. I think, well, I know he was uh, attorney general and he became governor. Because there's a, there's a quote from him. I mean, obviously, he goes on to become president of the United States and world leader, but he he said something like i'm glad he said i'm glad the job of governor doesn't doesn't pay more because then i might you know sydney moncrief might run for governor i wouldn't have a chance yeah, <laughs> so yeah. um that was just kind of a joke but on the other hand it's it's evident that you're by by nature of being so prominent in the sport you all of a sudden were in these circles with these you know the biggest impact people oh, how yeah. did you when you found yourself in those places, maybe even with governor, then president Clinton, how did you kind of come to grips with that, that you're all of a sudden these really impactful circles outside of the game? Yeah, it was kind of was very unusual, Peter, because uh, I remember a very prominent person that we became friends. We became tennis partners and we became friends and he was quite a bit older than me. And that was Sam Walton, the, the uh, founder of Walmart. I would go, he would invite me to the Saturday morning meetings. I would go up. And I think Mr. Sam liked me because of my humility. And because I was just not trying to be someone that I wasn't. And we eventually became tennis partners. He would be, And he liked me because I didn't let him win. Think about this. A lot of times when you're around powerful people, and even then he was the wealthiest guy in the, in the country at that point, you don't want to rough for the feathers. So if you're playing something against him, you're like, oh, I better not be Peter because, no, I, I wouldn't have Mr. Sam like he was you. It didn't matter. And we always had competitive tennis games, always, always. I didn't let him win pretty much. He had to earn the win. And he liked that. He liked the what we call uh, uh, being authentic. Authentic. This is me. I'm competitive. I'm going to win. And I think people in general, because I was in, you write some really high circles and government politicians and business people and all these. And it always came back as, oh, he's such a, a very sincere and nice guy. And I was just being me. I wasn't putting on any act. I'm not saying occasionally we don't have to do things or act a certain way even when we don't feel like it, right? But in general, I think as a leader and as a, a coach, you have to be who you are. And people like that about me is this is who you get. This is who I am. Take it or leave it. And that was one of my 
And that was not intentional either. I was just being me. But I'm guessing it's a it's an interesting thing because you have take the Bill Clinton example, like a, you know, a career politician, like that's what he does. He is on the track to like be a public servant to get elected and that's what he does and then you know we have high profile athletes or coaches or leaders who like you know our job is to play the game win games and we have to in some ways like stay focused there but when these opportunities come when all of a sudden you find yourself in these circles like how do you know okay at this point I'm staying in my lane I got to focus on my game versus wait a second, I have a real opportunity to influence someone and have an impact on something I care about. How did you, was that a career phase thing that you kind of- Yeah, that, 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 took, that took a while. I think uh, my teammate and friend, Junior Bridgman, probably did that as well as anyone at a younger age. Remember, when you're in your 20s, you really don't have the wherewithal. It's all about me. It's all about now. And you're not leveraging- potential relationships to do good things for others or to build build your brand. And I was like that. I really, I didn't do it very well. I had an attorney who later became a congressman, U.S. congressman. He pushed me to do things. He pushed me to go to this person. He pushed me to go to dinner with these people because I didn't really want to do it. I'm just to myself, I'm an introvert. No, Sydney, you, you really need to do this. You really need to go to this board meeting. He pushed me to do that out of my comfort level. And that was a good thing, but I didn't have all the other tools to leverage that. Like you said, the platform that athletes have now, when you can leverage having 5 million followers uh, to do good things. I didn't have that, 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 uh, and I don't, don't want to say intelligence. And that's, that, and I didn't have that confidence in that part of me to do that. There's something interesting, though, because there, we, of course, heard people criticizing this in this particular course that we're working on. It's leadership and justice in sports. So, like, how do we it's it's that question we just asked is how do we utilize sport to make the world better? And, you know, there was the very public someone criticized. I think it was LeBron or someone else and told him just play basketball. Don't worry about that stuff. Um and it's a complicated conversation because on one hand, you know, we have a lot of young people who maybe say you have a 22 year old basketball player who's great at basketball and may not be as educated on the social issues as other people. But on the other hand, we shouldn't just discount those voices either. So um, as you've looked at kind of the modern day scenario, like how do we find the right thread there? You know, in, in other words, like get those voices heard, but also recognize that they also have to focus on what's right in front of them. Yeah, that's a great assessment you just made uh, because that's something I struggle with when I'm trying to reconcile who's saying what and why. Mm -hmm. A couple of points I want to make on that. Number one, I don't care who you are, how famous you are, how many followers you have, always speak from an educated perspective, knowing both sides. A lot of times, as you know, we're being fed information. If I watch a certain TV station all the time, I'm going to get that perspective all the time, and it can shape how I feel and think. It might be another perspective that's, that's right or more rounded, and I totally don't even see it. And I think that happens with athletes and people in general, entertainers, because we're very reactionary to what's going on. I like, now that I'm older, I like to know both sides of what's going on. And then I can make my own assessment about that particular issue. I don't think uh, current day athletes do that very well. And what happens is you lose your credibility. You already have credibility to your followers. So you can say anything, they're not going to, they don't care. But the people that you're trying to win over or trying to penetrate their spirit to change their, how they feel about things, you lose them because they're going to say, oh, Sydney don't know what he's talking about. He don't even understand what's going on in, in Ukraine because he hadn't really took the time to study the history of Ukraine and the history of Russia and Ukraine. So all, those things are really important, I think. Uh, so that's one thing. 
number one, you have to educate yourself. Number two, you have to use your your public platform, which guys are using. But what about your private platform? What about when I had an issue with uh, Senator Cole, great man, great, great Wisconsin, outstanding America. But I remember I had a problem with the Milwaukee Bucks because they didn't have very many people in the front office of color or female. I had a problem with that. I could have publicly said I had a problem with that. Right? I could have done that. But what I did is I had lunch, I arranged a lunch with Senator Cole, my attorney, my attorney did, who was a congressman at the time. And we sat down in private and discuss why and what and how. I don't think current day athletes do that enough because remember, they have if you have 8 million followers, you don't have to always be public with everything. You can. But how about going behind the scenes and meeting with this congressperson, this senator, this city leader, where no one knows about, but you're trying to make things better for our society. And that that I think that should happen more I don't think they should ever be totally silent, but don't be stupid <laughs> with your with your words because you lose credibility and you lose impact when you're not accurate with what you're saying. That example of that issue that you were concerned about and you had sat down for a meal with Senator Cole, how did that play out? How did it go when you did that? It, it was a good. It was a good meal. It was a good conversation. I think it brought out the awareness of the issue, and that's what you want to do. You're not trying to solve a problem. You're trying to make people aware that this is a problem. And I think as time went on, they did better. No no one is doing perfect, even the current administration. They're not perfect in that area, but they're making strides in that area. And so I think I think it was a very fruitful engagement in meeting. I really do. There's, there's like a, just a couple more questions for you, Coach. There's this um, limiting – it's an interesting dynamic because on one hand, you get this platform as, a, as an athlete or a coach that you, you – know, you're operating with the governor, the president, whoever it is. Without the sport, you wouldn't have had that. But then people sometimes can diminish who you are just and say, oh, that's just – he's just a basketball player. He's just a, she's, she's just a, you know, a, a skater. So um, I really like what you said about the education component that there's almost like this responsibility we have that we get that platform, but we need to educate ourselves to make sure that when we're, when we're there in those spaces, we know what we're talking about. Yeah. And you, and you have to, and, and as an athlete, just like as a coach, you have to have a plan because you can have someone throw a microphone in your face about a controversy and you just start talking. And I love the I love intentionality. That's part of our grid concept. Because if I'm talking about something, even with you, I already in my mind know what I'm going to, I already know which areas I'm not going to go into. If I wanted to go into a controversial area, I, I'm intentional about it. I already know before the interview that I know this is going to rustle some feathers, so I'm going to say it anyway. That's being intentional about what you say, how you say it, and who you know is listening. Guys are not mature enough for that yet. So if you just start talking about an issue, I know when I'm going to get trapped. I know when I'm trying to get trapped. Uh, and, and those are things that athletes need to be more conscious of and sometimes we're just so arrogant we don't care <laughs> you know we don't really care <laughs> but if i say something controversial i know why i'm saying it I, i'm saying it for the impact that i want to have which is shock or someone disagreeing with it and as an athlete we're always guarding that we're more than an athlete that's one of our uh, we want to be seen as more than that well we're an athlete first, and if you be, if you're a good business person, kudos. If you're a good actor, kudos. But never never get upset at people because they say that you're just a basketball player because that's what you are. Even though you know you're more than that. Well, if someone calls you out for that, you just accept that and just move on. Yeah, and the other thing that I think it, um, a lot of times we we can we can hear like 
I, I was watching the there's a Lakers documentary and they're talking about you in it as well. When there's the big, you know, Magic Johnson and Sidney Moncrief for the two great players. But there's this aspect of when they're interviewing these old players, Kareem, or they're interviewing Dr. J that you look at, well, gosh, Dr. J's talking about this thing that happened 40 years ago. And I'm sure that's his every day that people are always asking about what happened back in 1983. And I'm sure it's the same with you. You get people always asking. Um, but there, that's a real, like, that's a real valuable thing that you have that perspective. It's not just someone who's reliving the glory days. Like you went through something that no one else has that lends you this richness of perspective. Um, it is, is that something that is continues to d- develop with you? Yeah, yeah, it continues to give me opportunity and a platform to spin it to make an impact today. Because some people are that's totally irrelevant. Well, maybe for some people, but I can take whatever irrelevant sometimes and make it relevant. It's just how I view it, number one, and how I spin it. I don't ever like to talk about the glory days just to talk about them unless I'm talking with old teammates. That's kind of fun. But in general, when you're, when you're doing interviews, you're like, you want to take something old and spin it, try to make it newer, make it more relevant, even though it's irrelevant. Uh, I hate when, I don't hate, but I think when younger players say, well, that player, they're totally irrelevant. They played 30, 40 years ago. Well, maybe some of people are irrelevant that played 30, 40 years ago. Some people are not, but our job just as older players is to make ourselves relevant, right? If we would like to be, uh, take current issues and try to create solutions or collaborations to make things better. That's how you stay relevant. You'll never be relevant again as a basketball player. I would never be relevant as a great basketball player. People can say, you you used to be a great basketball player. They can't say you are a great basketball player, but they can say, uh, you are uh, a great coach. You are a great community leader. You are a great husband. You're a great father. They can say those things. That's what you are. That's who you are now. And sometimes when young players are well, irrelevant, well, maybe so, maybe not. Coach, I just want to wrap up our recording by coming full circle to some of the initial things that we talked about in our first interview which was your mother, your mom, and the early influence that she had. And some of it you said tongue in cheek about how she, you know, she, she didn't want you messing with basketball, and but she was very strict and kept you making sure you're doing things around the house. And but uh, as you're talking here about humility, self-awareness, and the things you talk about in your book, I was thinking about your your mother as a leader and I wonder if you reflect back and you attach a lot of what you're talking about now to her and some of the challenging issues she had to work through growing up in, in little rock. And do, do you ever think back to like, what did she go through as a leader? Cause we often don't think of our moms as leaders, but what was she like as a leader? I only, I only look at her from the perspective of, of uh, what was she like? throughout my entire childhood when there, when there were crises all around that I knew nothing about that tend to happen where parents are going through stuff and kids don't know because we're just concerned about us. Yet, she kept the composure, she kept the confidence, she kept the grind, she kept the resilience, she kept everything moving in the right direction and she was not knocked down, totally knocked down about whatever was happening. That is how I reflect on her and my father and stepfather. Uh, they were wonderful examples of all the things we're talking about. Even when I became a pro athlete, she, she didn't boast about her son. She she just made a little something. Now, my dad had a big pen on his chest. You know, like, <laughs> my son is, which is fine. Everybody likes to express uh, their their pride in their kids or in their own way. But my, all of them, stepfather, father. And my mom, they were the examples with some of the things that, that I have developed. And remember, we're now this is a study, and you're a doctor, so you, you're a smart guy, and those studies can say whatever you want them to say. But one study does say that we are 50% of who we are is DNA. 
and the rest is based on our experiences and kind of what we mold. And I was in my car, and this is the truth. And don't laugh at me. I'm in my car this morning. I'm driving. And I'm thinking about my body that I used to have, not what I have now. And I said to myself, wow, Bernie Sperkins and Oral Moncrief, my dad, they created a beautiful special specialman. It's not amazing. They created because a lot of what I am, my muscles, my frame, my length of my legs, the length of my arms, it came from someone other than it just didn't happen. It came from DNA. And we take that for granted. So I give them credit for my beautiful skin. I'm 65. My skin is good. I didn't just have good skin. That came from what? DNA. And I always wonder, people that don't have those attributes, how angry are they at their parents or grandparents? You know, because you're stuck with certain things once you're born. And I was stuck with just a good body, a good frame, good skin, healthy. Well, my joints, my mom had bad knees. My dad had bad knees. And guess what? I have bad knees. So he always a great thing. Hey, you got you you got me thinking about whose fault it is that I got no hair. Now that would be uh <laughs> but, but well mine would be my dad and mom. <laughs> so they don't give you everything that's perfect, but they give you just enough for you to get by and to become great if you would like to. Yeah. So I put that in the context of uh I have a lot to be thankful for with my parents, uh, their direction and everything, their discipline. Well, the thing you the the thing you said, Coach, that also jumps out at me just now. But then also what you said about like some of your coaches is the the role of a leader as a buffer, meaning like protecting your kids or protecting your team from certain things, and that there you don't just let everything come at them. There's a protective element to it. That's that's tricky. Like that's a complex thing that. So your mom probably was going, or your dad were probably going through all kinds of things that you never knew they were going through that because they wanted to keep you safe and healthy. And in some ways, I, I would imagine coaches have to make those decisions as well about what can I not let get my team. Yeah, and, and coaches especially, you have to guard against giving them too much information. Because remember, the human mind is amazing. Uh, we we have eight to 12,000 thoughts per day, depending on what study we see. And of those thoughts, 80% are negative, it's been said, and of the 80%, 90% are just going free on the rewind. So you have to be careful what you expose your players to and what you're giving them, because if you're giving them negative, something else going to get into their mind, spirit, emotions, and they're going to just keep rewinding that. It's like when you're in a slump. (laughs) Why You're in a slump because your mind or whatever can't get out of that negative space, can it? And you just keep replaying it. And until you change something, you're going to remain in the slump. Coaches, you're you're somewhat responsible. You can't be you can't be careless with what you say, how you say it, and what information you give your players.